now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Hello and welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. I'm Lauren Mangum, the producer of Just Science, and in celebration of National Forensic Science Week, I will also be your host. Just Science will be releasing multiple Just So You Know episodes where we will be hearing directly from the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence's team. For our second episode, we're putting Dr. Jerry Rapero-Miller in the hot seat. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks. Good to be here, Lauren. What is your job title at RTI International? So currently, I am the chief scientist within the Center for Forensic Sciences. How did you get into forensics? I'm one of those that had a longer pathway. So my background was always math and science. So I ended up graduating, getting my degree in chemistry. And I worked for five years for Conoco, which is an oil refinery in Oklahoma City. So I was an R&D chemist and also a refinery chemist. And my expertise was looking at inorganic metals and the different things. At the time that I worked for Conoco, they were a subsidiary of DuPont. So not only was I working with the oil, I was working with products like their high density polyethylene. So the plastics that DuPont uses. Did that for five years, decided that was great, but it just wasn't my calling. And so knew I wanted to go back to graduate school. Had always been very interested in crime and people. And I was thinking at the time that I was going to go back and go to med school to become a forensic pathologist. And during that whole process, I ended up meeting my mentor, Bruce Goldberger, at the University of Florida. While I was actually interviewing for med school and found out about forensic toxicology in our interview, And it just, the light clicked for me Uh because I always enjoyed the chemistry, always enjoyed being in the laboratory. I just wanted to get to the level that I was getting to make decisions. Uh, He had just started two weeks before I got there. So I was like, are you thinking you'll have a student? And he's like, I don't know. I haven't really thought that, but probably in the future. I was like, well, is your future like in the next semester you would take a student? (laughs) He's like, probably. So I essentially went home the next day and withdrew my application for med school and got signed up for the GED and kind of just started that pathway, made it happen. So did you end up with your PhD at the end of all this? I did. So I was a struggling student, if you will, and that I knew that I had to get through it paying for it by myself. So I went back you know, this is my pathway. This is what I got to achieve by such and such, set it all out. And I was able to get done in four years. And I had a job waiting for me at the North Carolina Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Had been working with uh, Ruth Winokur in graduate school. And we worked together at the Emmys office for five years before I decided that was great. I really enjoyed and had a passion for that. But I always, always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to get back into research. 
So the opportunity came for me to move to RTI International, which was right down the street. So I have been at RTI for 14 years now, and my pathway here has been not necessarily deliberate either. I started, you know, doing research in not only the National Laboratory Certification Program, but also um, doing my own hair testing and analytical type of evaluations with instrumentation and worked in the laboratory, getting those types of projects through the National Institute of Justice. Then that led to creating a online forensic education program that we started from ground up, which was also through three or four NIJ awards, and I did the forensic education. So it was for training for professionals that are already in their field trying to get continuing education because uh, as a laboratory manager, I always struggled with how do I get training for my bench analysts that are not going to be able to go to those national meetings. And so that is a way that I saw was working in a lot of other fields. It wasn't really big in forensics. Uh, Dr. Peter Stout and I started uh, those programs. That led to, in 2011, us putting in a bid for the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We were awarded that award and uh, was project director for that beginning in 2014. So that's kind of where we are right now. Right. The forensic education stuff is actually still available through RTI, not through the FTCOE, but through RTI. So, you know, these are still out there. Now, let's go back a little bit, though. Let's talk about your ME experience. So how is that different than, say, a bench crime laboratory type job? So in medical legal death investigation or working in a medical examiner's office in their toxicology lab, our purpose was to help the medical examiners determine what the cause and manner of death is. So we did all testing that had to do with toxins. So not necessarily drugs. It could be other kind of poisoning or it could be, you know, it could be something that happened in an accidental situation. So we essentially did the testing of all of the specimens that would come from that particular case. And then as a forensic toxicologist, not only are you doing the testing, but you're doing the interpretation. And the interpretation was always very interesting to me because it's not about getting a number and knowing that that number, okay, well, that particular concentration is toxic in all situations. It really, it is very similar to a puzzle and that we have to look at the overall picture of that case. We have to look at the history. We have to look at any information whatsoever we have for that case and for those drugs and try to put it back together for what is the most logical answer for that particular case. So it was very interesting to me because every day what was coming across my desk could be very different. Although you did the same procedures, the end interpretation could be very different. And it was always supplemented with us having to do research to figure it out because the answers weren't always just right there because we went to school for a, a while. You right. could get a very unique case in that you spent time back in the literature, back talking to colleagues to figure out what it meant. 
Let's talk a little bit about some of the groups that you're involved with. Yes. I have yeah, a little, try to list it. a little bit of a list. I would say early on, I tried to stay within the lines of only getting involved in professional organizations that were in toxicology. So even when I was a student, I was a student member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and the Society of Forensic Toxicology. And I would say to students that, you know, take advantage of the opportunity that most of these professional organizations give you a very reasonable price, not only being a member, but also attending the meeting. So I know it's most of it is a shoestring budget, but I really think that getting involved as early as you can in the professional organizations can help you answer questions that you're not necessarily going to find at school. Um, so soft in the academy or early on in my career, I, you know, I'm a fellow in the academy, been soft member for, I don't want to say how many years, but <laughs> let's just say many multiple years. decades. <laughs> but here recently, probably after I came to RTI and really started to work with other stakeholders, I have maintained memberships within the American Society of Crime Lab Directors, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the International Association of Forensic Nursing. Also, I'm, I've been a long-term member of the International Association of Forensic Toxicology. And I think broadening my participation in organizations that aren't necessarily my area of expertise, but they're professionals that I work with on a daily basis here at RTI. It, it helps anybody not only understand the science of how the perspective of what they're doing for the forensic sciences, but it also, you know, obviously helps with networking. So when I do have issues, there's always somebody that I know that I can out. call to get help. And I know that people here at RTI, they always say, go ask Jerry, she's got to know somebody. And I usually do because I've, I've put time and effort into being very involved with the profession outside of my daily job. And I've always felt like that's important to us. And the other thing that's not necessarily a professional organization, but something that I've always tried to do as a professional is I have always been involved with students and early career. And so mentoring, taking on interns, even going out to talking to classrooms within my community about what a forensic scientist is. I've always felt like that's kind of our responsibility. And I love it. I Pay mean, it forward to the younger yeah, generation. <laughs> absolutely. You're part of many, many groups. So you have wisdom, but you're also a big proponent for IACME. What is IACME exactly? So there's two professional organizations within medical legal death investigation. One is IACME, which is the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners. And then there's NAME, which is the National Association of Medical Examiners in our nation, in the U.S., in a death investigation that is unsuspected, unnatural, just has question. It's going to go to a medical examiner's office or a coroner's office and your coroner or your medical examiner is going to do the investigation with his staff or her staff, and they will ultimately determine what is the cause and manner of death for that individual, which that is what will go on the death certificate. So those two organizations support the whole medical legal death investigation profession. 
Okay. And the NIJ is actually taking an interest for this year in particular. So we actually have many deliverables coming out in the next month or two. And some of those include recorded webinars from IACME. There's also a report or an in-brief coming out. Do you want to discuss that a little bit about what listeners can prepare for? Yeah. So it actually goes back to probably 2009 in the National Academy of Sciences report. And one of the stakeholder or professional groups that was really brought up in that report in considerable amount of time was the medical legal death investigation system, uh, the MDI systems, and, you know, what were the needs within that group. And things were written in that report. But you're right, Lauren, in that the last two to three years with things like the opioids crisis and many of these uh, drug-related deaths that have just skyrocketed in the U.S., The medical legal death investigation has definitely gotten the attention of the nation to start asking the question, well, what can we do to help their situation, help them to be able to do what their mission is, what they have been asked to do in the time of the crisis and the fact that they have a lot to get done and most of them are sitting with not enough time and money to do what they need to do. So... There has been funding from many sources, but NIJ in particular has put out several solicitations to specifically support medical legal death investigation. They've taken other funding mechanisms like Coverdale and have rewritten those to be able to allow for medical legal death investigation offices to get funding. And of course, NIJ came to FTCOE And we have always been involved in medical legal death investigation, probably because I've been (laughs) interested in it, but really trying to look at what are ways that we can help with best practices or technology or education gaps that aren't getting out there otherwise. So, you know, FTCOE has a unique situation that could be helpful. And so in the last year and a half, we kind of built a campaign for what are the things that we want to achieve. Now we're getting to the point that we had earlier this year a meeting for stakeholders for medical legal death investigation where NIJ brought 40 to 50 individuals together to start asking those hard questions and try to get answers for, you know, what are the next steps for how we can help this professional group. And that led to a report that you're talking about and in brief, it's just called the Medical Legal Death Investigation Stakeholders Meeting. And that should be on the FTCOE website in the next week. So it more or less summarizes what happened at that meeting, what was the discussion, what were the recommendations, so on and so forth. Another thing you talk about is webinars. And so we have not only had specific topics for a given technology, but we have done series that have been helpful to medical legal death investigations. So over, for example, we did a 13-part series on opioids. And it wasn't just for medical legal death investigation, but there were many of them that were in support of MDI. And what was unique about this webinar series, it was multifaceted to look at many perspectives of how opioids is affecting all of us and what are the things that we have to look at for public health, medical legal death investigation, you name it. You know, how are some of our federal agencies doing things that are within their scope and mission? So like the Center for Disease Control 
or ONDCP. So it's a very interesting webinar series and it has been very successful, which tells us that it's the message that people want to hear because I think we're well over 6,000 in attendees now between the online versions and the archived and people are listening to those on a daily basis. You just go to the FTCOE website, www.forensiccoe.org, and you can find it by looking up opioids crisis. Also uh, just released is some IACME archivals directly from their uh, recent symposium. There's actually continuing education credits associated with those. Yes, so many of the professional organizations do offer continuing education to their attendees, and IACME is one of them. But a lot of times, if it is available online, you don't necessarily get continuing education. So we had outreach from the community saying, you know, this is very important information. We plan on attending, we want to attend, but one of the things we struggle with is on an annual basis, we have to have so many hours of continuing education, and I am having trouble finding mechanisms to do that. Is there any way that you can start helping this community with continuing education? So we heard the message, and this information has not only uh, continuing education through ABMDI, which is the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigation, but the live stuff had continuing education post credits for law enforcement. Coming up in the next month for October, we're going to have a special release season for MDI pathologists that was recorded at IOCME, and you helped co-host that with our normal host, Dr. John Morgan. Who are some of the guests that people can get excited for? So the three we talked to were John Feudenberg, Kelly Keyes, and Bobby Joe O'Neill. And some of the topics that we talked about were mass fatality, vicarious trauma. For Bobby Jo O'Neill, she is a forensic nurse, and that is one of the professions that you are seeing that are drawn to medical legal death investigation or becoming a coroner. So she kind of walks through how she has taken her forensic nursing background and used it to her advantage and to the community's advantage for doing medical legal death investigation in South Carolina talking about your history and everything that you got going on and all the organizations that you're a part of. So it's come full circle for you for AFS, hasn't it? So the American Academy of Forensic Sciences is up to about 7,500 members. So it's a huge professional organization. And the one thing that I have always been mesmerized and very happy to be a member of the Academy because it is like the only multidisciplinary professional organization that we have 11 sections representing many different disciplines within forensic science. And it's the only one where you can bring all those disciplines together in one week to look at forensic sciences and get the perspectives of you're working with jurisprudence and legal, or you're working with medical legal death investigators, or you're working with lab practitioners, or you're working with the managers that are the leaders within the laboratories. So I think it's very well-rounded, and that's the reason I've always been a part of the academy. So 
in two years. It's a very long process, but I have been on the board of directors for the American Academy of Forensic Science, and it's a very long process in that normally you're on the board for three years, and then you'll rotate off, and then if you're fortunate enough and people believe in you and nominate you, you are asked to continue your service and actually go back on the board in a leadership role. And so that happened to me a few years ago. So this year, meaning February 2019, my new position will be president-elect if I'm nominated in that. And then the following year, between 2020 and 2021, I will have the fortune to be able to provide my services as the president of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. And I'm very excited about that, very honored honored to even be considered for that. And, you know, with a role like that, you have to start planning several years in advance to figure out, okay, well, I'm going to have this very important year. What am I going to do to, you know, hopefully leave some type of legacy? So positive legacy. Absolutely positive legacy. So (laughs) yeah, Just Science is super excited to see how that goes. And hopefully we can get an interview with you and you can tell us all about your platform and what you're going to do. So what is the most interesting thing that you have seen or done in research? I would say as far as interesting for me in research is probably been my move from actually taking what I know in laboratory sciences and trying to move it in the direction of a social question. So the work that's done in research and forensic science what is the social impact of that? Or what is the data analytics that we're getting out of a program like the National Forensic Laboratory Information System or NIFLIS that I'm a part of? We're collecting all this drug data, but how do you analyze and mine that data to make it meaningful? So that's been new for me in like right. the last you know five to 10 years and trying to ask those kind of questions that I never thought I would be doing right. has been a stretch but a very exciting and an interesting stretch for me. Which uh, you kind of get a little bit of that itch scratched with the FTCOE. So do you mind giving the listeners kind of just a generic overview of, because I mean, you've been with the FTCOE since day one. What is really uh, unique about the FTCOE to me and how it operates is really our primary function is to help NIJ with their push to get research into practice. So the FTCOE itself does not do research, but we support research and we support research in many ways. One of the ways is to do knowledge transfer are trying to take what is learned in research and get the awareness of what's been done out to the community. So whether it's a webinar, whether it's a podcast like this, or, you know, whether it's a report, all of that knowledge transfer is vital. Because like I tell everyone, if uh, research can be done, but research is no good unless it's being used. And people, if they don't know about it, they can't use it and implement it. So I think that that's very unique for FTCOE that we are doing knowledge transfer. And many times we are vital to those researchers because they finish their research grant, but they don't really have the knowledge, time, or know-how to actually 
take that information and get it out there to the community and more than just doing a peer-reviewed publication because you have to market and communicate that in many different ways. So we help them with that. We take new promising technologies that they have gotten through the point where they are being manufactured, but we actually kind of kick the wheels. So we will do a field evaluation where we're actually saying for practical purposes, you know, these are what the manufacturer says. How did it work for us? We work with practitioner laboratories to then like place that technology and let them do an evaluation for it. And that will come out in some type of technical report. And then another thing that we've done that is an evaluation, but it's a different way of looking at technology is doing what we call landscape studies. And so I kind of explain these as consumer report type reports and that we look at what is the state of the science and the state of the shelf for that particular technology. What's out there? What's available? You know, what are the characteristics that you can look at? And our reports lay it all out there. But those reports are not to say, you know, if you're going to buy this particular technology, you want to go with this one because that's what we proved. Because as we all know, what is good for me may not be best for you because we have different needs. And so it's really just laying it out there and the practitioner or the laboratory individual knows what's going to work in their particular setting. So it's a way to weigh pros and cons, exactly. kind of help weed through some of exactly. the extra. And bring it all together in one place so you're not having to go do the research yourself. We're doing that for you to kind of bring it all together, but not make recommendations, but you know, answer some of the questions you may have. We even try to get into questions like procurement considerations, because that's not something that's necessarily going to be in something that you get from the manufacturer itself, or it's not something that if you find a research report that has used that technology, that they're going to put that in a research report because it's just not the purpose most of the time for that. So we try to answer those questions that we know that you'll have, but you're not going to necessarily find it unless you're out there just asking people yourself. And that can take a lot of time that none of us have. The FTCOE is very interested in what the community needs are. Listeners, you can always go to ForensicCOE.org and contact us directly. We always have our ear to the ground, so feel free to reach out to us about any needs that you think we're missing or if you're having trouble finding something. But the website will have all these landscape studies. They have in-briefs, we have podcasts, we have webinars, we have all kinds of good information out there. So tell us one interesting personal fact about yourself. Okay, so here's one that I am right-handed but left-footed. So most people will look at me or they know me and they'll say, how did Jerry ever play sports? But I did play sports at one time in my life. (laughs) I played soccer, I played volleyball, I was a gymnast all in my earlier year. But it was always unique for me because on the soccer field, everybody would think, you know, you're right-handed, you would be right-footed, but I'm right-handed but left-footed. Wow. So I I could go in from the left side and score those goals. Everybody up. (laughs) Yes. That's actually pretty sneaky on your part. We'll end with this question. If you could have any job, you don't have to have the qualifications for it, sky's the limit, what would you be doing? So I'll probably go back to, you know, you have that thing that you always wanted to be, 
when you were a kid, but when I was a little baby, Jerry, I really did want to be a pediatrician. Oh, wow. So even as a young kid, you were interested in the medical side. Helping people. So It's, it's part of your core, I guess. Yeah, part of my core. So I'd probably go back to that. Well, thank you, Jerry Rapera Miller, for being on Just Science. It was great having you. Thank you, and hello, and goodbye. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.